Hi, it's Erica Kohlberg. And before we dive into today's podcast episode, I have an exciting announcement that can help you save an extra $1,000 without having to penny pinch or change your lifestyle. On Monday, I'm running my free five-day savings challenge where you'll discover simple and creative ways that you can save extra money every month. And whatever you want to do with that extra money is up to you. I'll just show you how to save it. The challenge is totally free to join. All you need to do is go to erica.com slash go. Erica is with a K and you can secure your spot. By the way, these strategies that you're going to discover can help you easily save money, whether you're a budgeting novice or a finance expert, and they're going to get better and better throughout the week. But I have to tell you, I'm so excited about this and don't want you to miss out. In November of last year, we ran a savings challenge and had over 200,000 people sign up. And on average, people saved $1,005 that month through what they learned in the challenge. That means our challengers collectively saved over $200 million. So trust me when I say you don't want to miss out on this one. And the deadline to sign up to be part of this free challenge is Sunday, 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time. So make sure you secure your spot and get free access today. Again, that's erica.com slash go, E-R-I-K-A dot com slash go. See you inside. Money doesn't have to be scary. And I think we give it so much power over us because we are afraid to feel vulnerable. Say hello to Erin Lowry, a.k.a. Broke Millennial. She is known as the Broke Millennial. She is the author of the four-part Millennial series, Truly everyone can get a handle and be in control of their financial life. If you had to summarize three biggest money mistakes people are making, what are they? You're listening to the Erica Taught Me podcast, the number one business podcast in the U.S., where we talk about entrepreneurship, money, and how to improve your life and achieve success. I'm your host, Erica Kohlberg. I'm a lawyer and personal finance expert with over 20 million followers on social media. Today, I'm interviewing author and personal finance expert, Erin Lowry. Her brand is Broke Millennial. Erin creates content around helping you get your financial life together, and this episode is all about money. Erin and I talk investing, retirement funds, and we discuss the money conversations that you should be having with the people around you. This episode will give you insights on everything you should be thinking about when it comes to money. And Erin shares with us the three biggest money mistakes people make and how to bounce back from them. Are you ready for this episode? I'm Erica Kohlberg. This is Erica Taught Me. And today we're here with Erin Lowry. You guys know that I love investing because you know that if your money is just sitting in a bank account, you're losing out to inflation every single year. That's why you invest it so that it grows for you without you having to put in any extra work. I've been using an investing app called Webull for almost four years, and I had them do something really special for my listeners. By using my link to sign up today, you can get between six to 12 fractional shares for free. All you need to do is open an account and deposit any amount, even a dollar, to claim your free shares. So just by depositing a dollar, you'll get between six to 12 free fractional shares. And if you're wondering what to actually invest in, we talk all about investing in episode 28. So go ahead and listen to that episode. To claim your free shares through my special link, just go to ericataughtme.com slash invest or click the link in the show notes. And it's Erica with a K. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash invest. 
So what do you think are the money conversations that we aren't having that we should be having? Man, this is such a like, where do I even start kind of question. I'm just going to go right for them because it's low-hanging fruit. Let's talk weddings. So many opinions on not only the wedding industrial complex, but just everything that surrounds the dynamic of having to have or be in a wedding. Number one, it is okay to opt out of being in someone else's wedding. If you do not have the budget, if you don't have the means, if you don't have the interest, it's okay to say no. And I think so often there's just so much social pressure to go above and beyond, not only for your own, but also for being in someone else's. And so just that alone, there is so much that we could talk about in terms of money conversations, setting your boundaries, prenups, postnups. I am very notorious for the fact that I am a huge advocate of the prenup. I have one myself. It's not just me saying like, get one. No, I actually have a prenup. I also did not want an engagement ring. And all of this to me ties back to values. And weddings are this perfect moment where we feel so much social pressure to do things in a very particular way from the engagement all the way through the actual wedding. And you really need to step back and think about what do I actually want? What is important to me? What is important to my partner? I mean, what's also important to the person writing the check? Like, let's be honest, if your parents are paying, they get some sort of say. But that is just this small microcosm of all of these ways in which we often succumb to just what everyone is telling us to do as opposed to thinking for ourselves, what do I want? Does this really speak to me? Is this how I want to do it? And most importantly, is this how I want to spend my money? Okay, so let's get into that then. Let's do weddings because I think this is applicable to many people listening. Let's talk about the conversations, the topics that you should go through with your partner, first of all, to make sure that you're aligned on the same page around the wedding. I'll give the first one. Maybe the first one is like, what is our wedding budget? What do we want to spend? Absolutely. That is the first question. Do we even want to have a wedding? I would say, like, even predates that. Like, do we want to have a wedding or do we want to go to City Hall? Do we want to elope? Like, how do we want to do this? Then if the answer is yes, we would like to have some form of some version of a traditional wedding, whatever that looks like to the two of you, how are we paying for it and how much will it cost? And then if it's going to cost more than the two of us can afford, who else is writing the check? And oftentimes, obviously, we look to parents in this dynamic. Are your parents somebody that you want to be pulling the strings about your wedding or your future in-laws? And I don't mean that as a shot to anybody's parents, but parents also get very emotional about weddings. A lot of people tend to feel like it's a reflection of them, their social status, maybe their class status, their financial ability to do something. So if you want a more low-key wedding, but your parents are paying for it, it might turn high-key very quickly because it's what they want. So part of it, too, is setting expectations and boundaries with the other people who are involved. You do need to be communicating all the way through about why you want something, why it matters to you. And that, I think, is where you can sort of start to pull threads a little bit, is question, do I want this because I actually want it, or do I want this because my sister, my in-laws, all of my friends all did it this particular kind of way, and Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm sort of supposed to. Or my friend just got engaged and has this big wedding ring, so I want it. And it's also okay if that's what you want. Like, I'm not coming for anybody's rings. If you're like, oh my gosh, that is just something that I find very valuable. It's something that I'm going to wear every day for the rest of my life. It means so much to me. Great. But I do think that 
oftentimes it's so easy to succumb to other people's expectations. And then it's so easy to let other people spend your money. And that's also where I always like to pivot this conversation is the being in the wedding. Because you might be listening to this and be like, I'm not even dating anyone. Weddings aren't really in the card for me anytime soon. If you're someone of the age of, I'm going to say 25 to 35, welcome to the Thunderdome. It is wedding season. And, you know, I didn't feel like I had that many friends. I had one year where I had to go to seven weddings in just one year. And no one gets married in New York City, so everything includes travel. And then on top of that, you have people that do engagement parties, bridal showers, bachelorette parties, and a wedding as four separate events. It's very, very easy to get so uncomfortable about having to say to someone, I love you, I want to be there for you on your day, but I financially cannot travel to your wedding and to a destination bachelor party and spend $200 on a dress and come to your engagement party. I would like for you to tell me what are the most important things you want me to be a part of because I can't do all of them. Mm -hmm. And if it also means that I can't be in your wedding, I totally understand and I'm still going to be there for you in any other way that I can. Just have that conversation immediately. Don't wait until like two weeks before the bachelorette party. No, I love that. I think that's very smart. It's so sad to me the number of people I see, first of all, having to use all their vacation days on weddings. Vacation days. That's not fun too. Like that's not really a vacation for you necessarily. And then having to go into credit card debt to afford these and to keep up because it really is about setting these expectations. And even for bachelorette parties is the expectation that everyone's going to split the bill And it's going to end up being very costly. And the other thing is you have to be very cautious of someone taking control and making plans without input from other people. The number of horror stories I've had in my DMs whenever I talk about this that have been like, oh yeah, I was invited to a bachelorette party and then it ended up being in Tulum and then the maid of honor just picked this $10,000 villa that she expected all seven of us to just split equally and and then I can't afford it. Bottle service. Yep. And in those scenarios, it's also important to whoever else is making the decisions besides the bride. And by the way, we're using weddings, but this can apply to like birthday dinners. This can apply to class reunions, friend trips. Like there's just so many areas of your life. But whoever is the quote unquote decision maker, get to that person early and say, I would love to come. I do want to be honest. This is my budget. And if it turns out that you can't go, then that's another conversation you have to have. Or just talking about, hey, if you want to do this kind of expensive villa, all these rooms are going to be the same size. Can we prorate based on where people stay? I'm happy to take the smallest room. How do you deal with the people who are worried to like upset and stir the pot and don't want to be like that person who is counting pennies? I cannot take credit for what I'm about to say. This is Melanie Lockhart who wrote Dear Debt, and I interviewed her for my third book, And she said, would you rather be embarrassed or resentful? And that I thought was just such a great way to summarize. There's sort of two paths ahead of you. And I think in her example, she was talking more specifically about advocating at a birthday dinner where they wanted to like split it evenly. And she had a side salad and that wasn't really in her budget. And she's like, you know, in this moment, I had this choice of, am I going to be embarrassed about advocating for myself. Like maybe I'll feel a little bit of shame in the moment that I'm just not financially in the same spot as everyone else or that I don't want to go into credit card debt. Or am I just going to be resentful of my friend and all of these other peoples for days, weeks, months to come, which also, by the way, can really fracture a relationship. 
It's hard because I've been on both sides. Like I remember being in law school and going to my friend's birthday dinner and I just could not afford to have that much. So I just had the soup and then the bill comes and they're like, let's split it. And if you split it, it was like $60 a person versus my soup was maybe $8. And so I didn't, I don't know what I did at that time. I think my friend spoke up for me and said, oh, Erica only had the soup, so make sure she doesn't pay 60. But then recently I was at a dinner and it was kind of a family sharing style. And this girl at the end, I didn't know her. She was a friend of a friend, was like, well, I didn't eat this dish and I didn't eat this dish and I didn't touch this dish either and wanted to like break it down and give like a prorated version to herself. So I was a bit annoyed, but then I've, I've been on both sides of the situation. I don't, I don't know the right answer. There isn't a right answer, which is why it makes it so complicated. Um, my version of the soup was a like $60 quesadilla at a friend's dinner, like birthday dinner, sort of similar situation. I had scoured the menu ahead of time. I was like, I can get the cheese quesadilla at this bougie Mexican restaurant that we're going to. And they just sent the bill around basically. And people were like, I owe this much. And it got to me, I was like third to last to go. And it was going to net out to me having to pay 60 bucks. I didn't have the sangria. I didn't have like the guac and chips. I just sat there with my sad little quesadilla. And Similar situation, the friend's boyfriend actually advocated. And he was like, this is ridiculous. They're, you guys are doing this wrong. I'm going to sit down and handle it. So I'm now always that person. If there's somebody at a dinner who like obviously feels uncomfortable with paying, I'm like, oh, no worries. I'll figure this out. And sometimes the answer is the person who wants to remove themselves does so and everyone else just splits it evenly if they're comfortable with that. Kind of makes it nice and clean and simple. If you can get to the waiter or the waitress first and say, hey, I'm going to order this, this, and this. Could I get my bill separate? That's another way to do it. I saw that done recently at a birthday dinner. But mm. in the micromanaging of trying to prorate at a family-style restaurant, that's a moment that I would say you should advocate early instead of later, where you should have a conversation with somebody very early on, perhaps the person that invited you. And it could be as simple as, I would love to come. Unfortunately, I don't know that it's in my budget to split it evenly, how about I just come at the end for dessert or drinks? Or how about I just come for a drink prior and then meet you up after dinner? Because you don't have to stay for the whole thing. There's so many different ways that we can provide options. And again, this comes down to social decorum, what we've been socialized to do. And it's okay to set your boundaries and also just be very open and honest and transparent in a way that makes you feel comfortable. One of the big things that I think people screw up on in probably their 20s, but throughout life is just saying no all the time because they don't want to have the hard conversation. So they get the invitation and just say no. We talk about this a lot with romantic relationships that people don't like rejection. It's true in platonic relationships. If your friend just keeps saying no, 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 they're going to stop asking you yeah. eventually. And it's a really good way to lose friendships and relationships. And one of my biggest money regrets for my 20s. Was you just, you were the one who kept saying no? Yeah. Because I, I either always prioritized side hustling and making money, so I couldn't come, or it was because I was too embarrassed to set a boundary or to give an alternative option and then just said no because I didn't want to spend the money on whatever it was they were doing. Yeah, and I also think that taking the initiative is big and steering it towards what your budget can afford. So I graduated from law school with over $200,000 of debt. Obviously, I could not afford to do many things, but what I did do is if I wanted to hang out with friends, hey, let's do a potluck at my house. Let's go on a hike. Let's do a picnic. 
and kind of just steer the activities towards what was within my budget, right? Yeah, the old compliment sandwich method. It's also the, I want to spend time with you, but I can't afford to do bottomless brunch, so instead, could we, and then offer a solution. I always love the idea of whatever problem, quote-unquote, you're creating, you also offer a solution, as opposed to, no, it's, I would love to, but I don't want to spend $50 on brunch. How about we get bagels and go for a walk in the park instead? And listen, is there a prerogative to say no? If they want to do the thing that they proposed, and so do your other friends, that's okay. Maybe we just don't follow them on social media that day. (laughs) What other regrets do you have from your 20s? Oh, man. I would say with money, the big one definitely is not doing a better job of investing into friendships and relationships and just being really fixated on money in a fairly unhealthy way. And the idea of saving, growing my net worth, all of that. And this would have been just as I turned 30. Funnily enough, I a little bit regret how quickly we paid off my husband's student loans because our final payment that got pulled out of our emergency fund, by the way, because sometimes personal finance experts go against their own advice, was December of 2019. So everybody sees that timeline. And if we had just waited three months, a lot of his loans were federal. and It would have been 0% interest rate. 0% interest rate for a long time. And we were making big payments on those student loans. And listen, took a lot of stress off in the pandemic to be debt-free. Don't get me wrong. But I will also say for the folks who get a lot of the narrative about the dogged pursuit of paying off debt as aggressively and fast as possible, you just never know what's coming down the pike. And balance is great. If you're listening, let me guess. You have a passcode on your phone. And let me take another wild guess and say that you have a password on your computer. But why are so many of us okay just being completely unprotected online? We have no idea who has all our personal information online and whether it's the good guys or the bad guys who might be selling your information or worse. We're talking spammers, telemarketers, robocallers, people who want to know more about you and even where you live. My sister had her data leaked online and because of that, her identity was stolen and it was a nightmare to deal with. We had to lock down all her credit cards just for starters. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Aura, a sponsor of this episode. Aura can identify data brokers exposing your info and submit opt-out requests on your behalf. When I discovered it, I knew I had to try it out just to see if my information had been leaked online, which they let me see instantly after I signed up. And get this, for my audience, they're offering a free 14-day trial so you can see if your personal information has been leaked online. To find out now, go to ericataughtme.com slash Aura to claim your free 14-day trial. Erica with a K and Aura is spelled A-U-R-A. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash Aura, and I'll also leave the link in the show notes. I know. You know what I did? I had my sister. She's in dental school. She had lots of loans from undergrad, and I had personally refinanced my loans to get a lower interest rate. Well, I had advised her to refinance her loans in 2019, and they were all federal student loans. And of course, as soon as the news came out that all of those would be 0% interest rate for indefinitely, I, was, I felt like a completely bad sister because she was paying 4%. 
on those private refinanced student loans. And it wasn't bad advice at the time. You know, I think that it's a regret in retrospect for me, for you, because of the information that we have now. Mm -hmm. It was the right call to make when it was being made. That's also the tricky thing about money and life is that so often we do get a little bit revisionist history about the things that we did. And we shouldn't. You make the best decisions based on what you know at that time. Exactly. This is like people who invest in the stock market and then the next day we find a 20% crash. Like They're going to be like, oh, I wish I would have invested the next day. But for a lot of these things, it's better to do something than to do nothing. That's true, because especially, I mean, with everything in life, but definitely with money, inaction ultimately becomes a decision. Mm -hmm. And decisions get made for you or opportunities go away. And it does get very easy to just overanalyze or be in sort of the paradox of choice realm about having too many options and not really make a decision until your hand is forced and something gets made for you. You've written three books. You've helped hundreds of thousands of people with their money. What's the one thing that if you could say, hey, implement this today and your financial future will be much better, what is that one thing you would tell them? You have to pay attention and face your numbers. A lot of times people operate under the just pay the bill when it comes in and I'm not really paying attention to the rest of the picture That's not necessarily a recipe for disaster because it could be perfectly fine. You could have a great credit score. You could be paying all of your bills on time. Everything could just be kind of go along, get along. But the way in which you can level up your financial life, if you just pay attention, truly everyone can get a handle and be in control of their financial life. But it really all starts with paying attention, knowing your full debt picture, knowing all the interest rates on everything, knowing who owns it. I mean, how often do we see debt changing hands and companies buying each other out? Making sure that you do have a strong credit score, so then you have access to better products if and when you need to borrow or refinance. And knowing your inflow and outflow of cash, like, How are you operating month to month? Is there some money left over every month or are we running into the red every single month? And if we are, is that an easy fix? Is that, you know, it would be a convenient narrative if it always was like, just unsubscribe from a couple of things and like stop buying your lattes and all will be well. It's rarely that easy, but for the occasional few it is. Or then the answer might start to become, how can I negotiate better? Do I need to look around for another job? What can I do to economically add some more credentials for me to be able to level up my career? That all gets unearthed by just paying attention to your financial picture as opposed to being really passive and letting money just kind of happen to you. So in your book, Broke Millennial Talks Money, one of the things you talk about is having these conversations at work around money. What are these conversations that we should be having at work? Okay, controversial statement. Ask people how much they make. And I know like a lot of people who are listening like maybe physically had a reaction to that, tightening of hands, maybe of other anatomy, because A, really awkward thing to ask somebody, and B, you might feel like it's none of your business. If it's just a casual friend or a very good friend who does not work in your industry, it might not be any of your business. But if it is somebody who does your job, and you think might be getting paid a lot more than you are, very much your business. So I do think it is very important in a safe way for us to be able to ask each other in the workplace how much we make. Now, from an American perspective, it is illegal to fire somebody. In most cases, this is not in all cases, but in most cases, it is illegal to fire someone 
for asking someone else how much they make. They can find another reason to fire you, though. And so that's partly about knowing your office culture and workspace. If you work in an environment where you think, yikes, if it gets around that I'm asking these questions, it really could cause some serious blowback, don't ask at work. But you need to be getting this information from elsewhere. So that could be cold pitching folks on LinkedIn who do a similar job you do, similar sized company, similar city, or the exact same city. You want to make sure that you are factoring in all of these different elements because somebody who's working in tech in New York is making a different salary than somebody who's working in tech in Idaho. So it is very important to make sure that you're trying to comp to someone who does a very similar job in a similar space, in a similar city. And you want to diversify the people that you're asking. Mm -hmm. So you want to make sure that you're asking both men and women. You want to make sure that you're asking people of different ethnicities, particularly if you think that you might be subjected to the racial wage gap. And it can take quite a few pitches, especially if you're doing cold pitching on LinkedIn. But folks generally tend to kind of be interested in helping. And you could open with, I think I might be getting underpaid and I do think you have some information that might be helpful to me. Could you tell me how much you earn? And if they get cagey about that, could you tell me if you make over or under $65,000 or whatever the salary ranges that you're thinking about? If you're having that conversation in person, the ballpark strategy can be really useful because then somebody doesn't have to be like, yeah, I earn 75. If you say, do you make over or under 75? And they say over, Do you make over or under 80? Like, keep pushing it. They've opened the door. Find out closer to like within a 5,000 range of their ballpark. That information is relevant to you because it could make a big difference on the negotiation that you want to have with your manager the next time you go in. You might unearth that you've been getting underpaid. I've even heard one of the women I interviewed for the book who is a negotiation um, expert slash consultant This sounds like a very urban tale, but she had a client who directly asked a coworker how much they made, and her client was making 20 grand under what her coworker was making. And she was pretty surprised because similar credentials. So the client, instead of kind of going into the manager all guns blazing, like mad about it, just simply matter of fact said, you know, I noticed that Josh, or I found out that Josh is making $20,000 more than I am, and I'm just curious what would be the reason for the difference. And the manager was like, oh, well, we have salary, and there's no reason. Like, that shouldn't be happening. Just let me check. And apparently HR had plugged in her salary incorrectly in her hiring paperwork, and she had just been getting underpaid. What? Which sounds ridiculous. But the thing is also, people make mistakes. And It sounds like such an urban legend reason and is probably not the reason most people are getting underpaid compared to their coworkers. But again, mistakes happen. And if she had not asked that question, she never would have known and would have continued to have been underpaid relative to even what that company was willing to pay her. Mm -hmm. So it is okay to be bringing up these conversations, but you should also ultimately have a reason and be asking the right people. It's not necessarily the right move to ask your manager because that's probably not relevant information to what you need to know, unless your manager is just going to be forthcoming about it for whatever reason, which is great if that's your manager dynamic. I would say from the legal perspective, the one thing I would caution people to do is have these conversations outside of the workplace. Because like you're saying, there is kind of a gray zone, and to protect yourself the most, you really want to have these conversations you know, after work, at coffee, whatever it is, just outside of the workplace. And then the other thing is, I always find when you're entering these difficult conversations, 
showing that you yourself are vulnerable and willing to share information first, that makes it a lot easier to for other people to open up to you. So I don't think it's ever the case that you could go up to someone and be like, how much do you make? But what I do think I would do in that kind of work scenario is be like, hey, I am thinking about asking for a raise. Right now I'm making $66,000. Do you think it would be reasonable for me to ask for a raise to $72,000? And you can look at the reaction. And hopefully by you volunteering that information, maybe they're going to be able to say, oh, actually, I think based on what you're doing, you should be asking for 77,000, you know, you can, if you feel like they're not going to be that open with you, volunteer the information first to see their reaction. Or you always play the friend card. Hey, my friend is considering a role doing this and this and this in New York City. What do you think they should ask for? Because then you're not actually extracting that information directly from them, but they're not going to tell your friend to ask for 50000 when they know that they're making 70000 you know? Exactly. And that's also the other pitch that you do when you're on LinkedIn or whatever you want to use for cold pitching is the reason I'm about to ask for a raise, I'm going into a job interview, I was planning to ask for X, do you think that's reasonable or does that sound appropriate or is that what you would ask for? However, you kind of want to tie it off. But it is, I like also, yes, out of the workplace. And hey, if it's happy hour, might also help you get some information. <laughs> I'm not saying get your coworkers drunk, but I am saying sometimes <laughs> lips loosen a little bit when you go to happy hour. And it does tend to then just be a more casual dynamic as well. And it doesn't always doesn't always have to be kind of like a one-on-one you and this one other person. It can also be helpful if you have several people at the table who might also be willing to be vulnerable about it as well, who are more or less of the same level at your company. Mm -hmm. Because then you can also start to see, well, this one person is making, you know, 10K more than I am, but this person's making 15K more than I am. And like, why is that happening? Or hey, Maybe you're making the most and then you just stepped in it and you're going to have to have conversations <laughs> too. And I think in today's work culture, also just acknowledging that maybe staying at that same company and trying to get that incremental 3% raise is not the best move. And all these studies show that it is not the best move anymore. You're on average going to get a 3% raise if you stay at a company loyal for 20 years versus if you hop around to different jobs on average, you're going to get a 10 to 15% raise. So the math does not lie there, right? Absolutely. And especially because when you're hopping, you can also be looking at other places to negotiate beyond salary. So what are the benefit options at that company? What do their matches look like? Do they have an employee stock purchase plan that maybe your former employer didn't have that's going to be more beneficial for you? There are all sorts of other things to consider that we often get very fixated on salary when there's a lot more that matters for our overall long-term financial health and wellness Retirement plans being a big one. Mm -hmm. And that's generally, I would say for a lot of companies, it can be a little bit harder to negotiate. Like if you're getting 4% from your employer and it vests on a five-year graded vesting schedule, most likely that's what your coworkers are getting too. It doesn't hurt to ask though. Because maybe somebody was able to negotiate something when they came in and it's good for you to know that there is a door that's open to allow for that at your company. Yeah. No, that's so true though, because a lot of times these companies do have a mandate that the highest we are able to offer for this job is this amount. But go ahead and ask for that 
hybrid day or hybrid work schedule or whatever it is, those extra benefits that don't matter so much to them, but can actually matter for your quality of life and your bank account, right? Yes, absolutely. And the other thing here, because it can be really uncomfortable to have these conversations, I don't think there's anything wrong with going the cold pitch strategy first, reaching out to a bunch of people on LinkedIn, just to kind of get your feet wet in a way that maybe isn't going to impact your workplace environment. But also whether we're talking about asking coworkers how much they make or negotiating, trying to play some of that out in your day-to-day life in a very low stakes way can be super helpful. So for instance, and this kind of ties, dovetails more into talking about negotiating, but silence is golden and you're going to make your statement to the person that you're negotiating with and then be quiet because people get really uncomfortable. Like, let's just Bear with me. We're going to be quiet for five seconds right now, starting now. That's so awkward. That's so long, five seconds. And that's only five seconds. (laughs) And so, so often in negotiating, it kind of becomes a who's going to break first. And that's a bad way to put it. Negotiating is a collaborative effort in which the two of you are both trying to reach a satisfactory goal. But let's be honest, part of it is like a little bit of a mind game. And part of it is you saying, I want this, and then shutting up. Practice shutting up before you get in the room. One of the things I always like to recommend people try doing, if you, for instance, have a favorite coffee shop that you go to, and you walk in and it's 4.30, they close at 6, there's like five croissants left. And you know, some of those are going in the trash at the end of the day. You order your coffee and then say, you know, I was just curious since it's the end of the day, could I get the croissant for 50% off? (laughs) Be quiet, see what they say. And they might say no. And it's also okay to experience getting no's. There's so many different ways and we could practice basic negotiating tactics in our day-to-day life that could be really helpful for us when we're finally in the room where the bigger it matters now negotiation is going to happen. I recently went on an anniversary getaway with the husband and it was beautiful. Here's everything I got for free. We got free business class tickets for an international flight, which meant, yep, you guessed it. I got free access to the lounge where we could kick things off with a glass of champagne. Then we got a free stay at a five-star hotel where we could relax and go to the beach. Okay, so now I'm sure you're wondering how I got it for free and you know I don't gatekeep, so here's the insider knowledge you need to know. I did it by signing up for a free Built credit card. Built is a credit card that lets you earn points just for paying your rent, and there's no extra fee. And when I say free, I mean free. There's no annual fee for the credit card, and they don't charge a transaction fee for paying your rent with the card. You'll also earn two times the points on travel and three times the points on dining. Once you get your points, you can transfer them to travel partners like airlines and hotels to then get the free business class flights or five-star hotels like I did. To sign up for this card, go to ericataughtme.com slash built. Erica is with a K and built is B-I-L-T. Or to make it easier, go to the link in the show notes. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash built. I like that. What about other conversations that we should be having at the workplace. Setting boundaries are very important. And I think some of that also comes down to the socialization element of things, right? So maybe you can't afford to go out to lunch every day. Maybe you can't afford to go to happy hour all the time. But 
to harken back to what I said earlier, making sure that sometimes you are investing into the relationships. So maybe that means that what you have to do with your own budget is set aside some money every single paycheck for a networking fund. And so at least twice a month, you are going to go out with your coworkers on these regular happy hours. So much happens off campus. And I think that that's something that people really underestimate when they're early on in their career is how much value is actually happening not in the actual office place. So that would be one that I would definitely consider. And negotiating is also a very heavy conversation for a lot of folks. Oftentimes, when you're early on in your career, you wait until you get brought into the room and they're going to tell you your raise to start the negotiating process. And that is usually entirely too late because a lot of times companies have already set their budgets, already decided who's getting what. So if you're trying to negotiate on a budget that's already been doled out, there's not a whole lot of wiggle room for your manager or anybody else higher up. What you need to figure out is when does your company tend to give out raises? You can ask. That's a really easy question to ask your manager. Mm-hmm. Are we working on annual reviews? Is that when raises go out? Is it you know in April when the budget gets reset? Is that when raises go out? Just frankly, directly ask your manager. Maybe three months prior to when that would be happening, that's when you want to sit down and have a conversation with your manager about, here's what I've done. I would like to see a raise of this amount. Could we discuss how to make that happen? And that is a big conversation that often gets left until way too late. Yeah, and it's hard when you're younger in your career. You just assume that it is what it is. There's nothing I can do to change it. And that might be true if you wait too late. (laughs) It is important to talk early. As we're barreling into continued recession talk, I think a lot of people get very anxious about, can I be asking for something if we're in a recession? There is a little bit of a read the room element to that. If you're in a company that specifically is really suffering, now might not be the time to ask specifically for a raise, but maybe talking overall about your future in the company with your manager and sort of explaining where you'd like to see yourself being in the next couple of years and getting constructive feedback about how to get there. You know, anytime you can get someone to give you constructive feedback on how to achieve something, because then if you go out and achieve it, the question becomes, well, if you said I could get a raise if I did X, Y, Z, I have done X, Y, Z, and also A, raise please. (laughs) And I think the biggest thing too is, like you were saying, read the room, but also read your manager. Because unless you're at a very small company, your manager is probably not the final decision maker for your raise. So you need to understand that the manager you want them on your side. So understand what's going on. Did they just lose a big client? If so, absolutely not the right time to talk. But did you guys just close a big deal together that increased revenue by X percent? Then that's probably the right time to have a conversation because ultimately you want them to be on your side as they're advocating to what's likely their higher ups to ultimately get you the raise, right? Yeah, the one way I've heard that describes that I really like is there's a difference between a mentor and a sponsor. And that what you really want in your workplace is a sponsor, somebody who's going to advocate for you, be in the room with the people who are making the big decision and saying, you know what, Erica crushed it this quarter. This is why I think she deserves this amount of the raises that we're giving out. Here is some data points to back up what I'm saying. Anytime somebody compliments you, anytime you achieve certain metrics, anytime that you can quantify what you did at your job, save it in a folder. Call it success folder on your desktop. I don't care, but put it somewhere so it's easy for you to get back to. Make sure people CC your manager if they're giving you praise, all of that kind of stuff. But also your manager probably knows, to be honest. If they're a good manager, they know. 
And then they're your sponsor to try to get you to push forward in your career. A mentor might not even work at your company. It could be somebody who is from a different stage of your life or maybe just from completely outside of your workplace, but can give you really sage advice on how to navigate certain parts of your career and life. One thing we did at my law firm that I now still implement in my life that I think everyone should do is keep track of where your time at work is going to. So as a lawyer, you bill by every six minutes. So I know down to the six-minute mark like where my time has gone. I can tell that I've spent 30 hours on this project for this client, 50 hours on this project for this client. But I think when you're at a place where that's not a mandate, it's important for you to do it yourself. There's a free app called Clockify.me that my team uses now. And just track where your time is going because then when you are entering those conversations asking for a raise, you don't have to look back wondering, okay, what did I do the last six months? You can see very clearly that this much of your time went here, this much of your time went here, and then make sure that it's always results-driven. So, okay, you spent 50 hours on this project. What results did you accomplish? But I think that's just so so much better than just wondering where your time went the last six, 12 months of your work life, right? I agree. And also for our self-employed friends like myself and now yourself, I do think that it's just as if not more important to be honing these skills. You know, a lot of times, even right now, we're talking in like a very traditional office environment context, but to hearken all the way back to the very first question about asking someone how much they make, it is so important for freelancers and contractors to be having those conversations with each other because whoa, the amount of money that can get left on the table if you have zero cents. Because there is no glassdoor.com, there is no salary.com for us to go try to look up how much do I charge for this kind of project. Like We have to be able to ask each other. And again, you can go back to the ball range. Are you making over or under ballpark, I should say? Are you making over or under X amount? I've had those emails sent to my inbox from fellow freelancers like, hey, I'm working for this client. I noticed you write for them as well. Could you tell me, do you charge over or under a dollar a word? Or do you charge over or under $500 for an article? Whatever it is. And then I'm always like very blunt back. Like I charge exactly this much. This is what I do for them, et cetera, et cetera. And I think especially in the freelance world, a lot of people tend to be a bit more open. My feeling is rising tide lifts all boats. Yep to borrow a cliche, because if I'm getting you to raise your rate, it's going to be beneficial for me in the long run because we don't want too many people undercutting. Yeah, and you see that. You see the people who do want to be gatekeepers and keep it close who have that scarcity mindset that, oh, a dollar to you means that I won't get a dollar. But that's just not the reality here. And it might be from one company, but particularly if you are a self-employed person, there are a lot of companies out there and there are a lot of dollars out there. So also just because I'm the right fit at one company doesn't mean that I'm also the right fit for another one and being able to refer people as well. And when you're referring someone, tell them what you would charge. Like if you're very much of the same level saying like, hey, I was going to charge that for that gig. I just recommended you for it. I recommend you ask for at least that, if not more. Or if there's somebody who's maybe a few years behind you, say, hey, this is what I would charge based on slight difference in you know credentials, following, whatever you want to call it. I recommend you charge at least why. Love this. <laughs> Give people information. <laughs> I imagine after writing three books, you've had 
thousands of readers write into you saying, this part resonated with me, or because I read this, I did this. What's that? Is there a specific story or a specific piece of advice that you've given that people are constantly bringing up? Yes. So I would say, well, third book, and we've talked about it a lot already, is just the kind of counter-offering boundary setting and protecting your own finances. That's come up quite a few times. People be like, I didn't realize how easily I was letting other people spend my money. But the one that I feel best about, because I feel like I have put tens of thousands of dollars back into people's pockets, is the way I talk about retirement. So in my second book, I talk a lot about investing for retirement. And I am very careful when I use that language because colloquially we say save for retirement. And that is a misnomer. You are not saving for retirement. You are investing for retirement. And the problem is because really at what point in our lives are we taught about investing in school? Pretty much never. And if we are, it's like often very confusing, not well done. People don't totally know what they're talking about. You get to a point of having a 401k, also no one is there holding your hand, no one is explaining anything to you. If you don't have like a phone a friend option to call a parent or like a good friend who knows what they're doing, it's so overwhelming. So either A, people just opt out and don't pay attention and don't start contributing to their 401k or whatever retirement plan, or they do start, but they don't know to pick investments. Now, this has slightly changed over time because a lot of companies have pivoted to like auto-enrolling you into a target date fund that they think is appropriate. And I can circle back to what a target date fund is because I just use jargon. But for so many folks, I would get all of these DMs where people would have read my book and gone to check their 401k and realized all of their contribution for years had been sitting in a cash management account. They had never actually selected investments. So they were literally saving for retirement, as opposed to investing for retirement. And break that down even more simply for people who don't understand what, what you just said. So the reason it matters is because when you are investing for retirement, a huge part of it is that you are putting your money in the stock market, which over time we want to say gives, I'm going to go more conservative and say 7% return on your money over decades that your money would be in there. And that's assuming you're 20 or 30 something investing for retirement, where if you just have it sitting in cash, well, right now, high yield savings accounts are at like 3.5%, which is great. But if it's sitting in cash in a retirement account, it's probably sitting at like nothing or maybe 0.01 or 0.05. So you're just accumulating money. There is no part of compound interest helping you grow your money. And the way that I love this was framed for the book, I interviewed Jill Schlesinger, who said, when you put your money in the market, your money goes to work for you. And you can save your way to a lot of big goals, but you're going to have to save so much more money to achieve the same goal. But to cycle back to all these folks, what was happening is people would open up a 401k, click like contribute 5%, 10%, whatever they were contributing, but then they didn't finish the process of going and picking actual investment funds because the 401k is not an investment. I think that's the other place where a lot of people disconnect is they think 401k, it's an investment. No, it's just a vehicle. I like to kind of say like the 401k is the house, then the stocks that you pick or the target date fund that you select or the bonds that you're putting in there, that's your furniture. So you want to make sure we're putting furniture in the house. Again, the 401k is just the house that you are potentially just piling up cash in and not actually investing Mm -hmm. in. So we want to make sure you are actually investing for retirement. And then the next question that I hear someone screaming at their phone right now is, how do I know if I'm investing for retirement? 
the easiest thing to do is just log into your 401k. One, has it changed at all in the last couple of years? For some, it might have gone down a little bit because we've gone in and out of market flows. But if it's not been going up more than the amount that you're contributing, there's a bit of a red flag. But the bigger thing is when you see where your money is, what are the words that's right next to it? Because if it says cash management or settlement fund, anything like that, then it's probably sitting in cash. And if you're still confused, just call. Whoever is your 401k provider, pick up the phone, call customer service, get them to look at your account and say, I'm just kind of confused. Am I actually invested in anything or is my money sitting in cash? And they can tell you very easily. Yeah. And a big thing to add to this too, I don't see it so much anymore for the 401ks because like you were saying, a lot of the employers will automatically put it into target date fund. But Roth IRA is where I see it. And you could be contributing to Roth IRA for 10 years and it's just sitting in that cash account because that your employer is not hand-holding you through it. That's really all you. So for your Roth IRA, you have to make sure you did that final step. So check both. Yes, please. Anywhere where your money, SEP IRA, Roth IRA, traditional IRA, solo, solo 401k, 401k <laughs> regular 401k, 403b, whatever you got, like please make sure that you're actually invested. Pick up the phone and talk to someone if you're really confused about it. Often, if you do have the advantage of an employer-matched 401k or any sort of employer retirement plan, it's not just your own IRA. Usually, at least once a year, there's somebody who might like come in and talk to you about benefits or there's a number you can call to ask questions about your account take advantage of that. Get on the phone with somebody and just get a little bit more information. So often, especially when it comes to investing, I think what happens is no one likes to feel dumb, myself included. So it gets really embarrassing to ask these questions because it feels like everyone else somehow just knows what these things are or what this means. And they don't. Like I remember the very first time that I tried to set up a 401k I filled in all my information, set my beneficiary, which if you don't have on your accounts, please do. And then I get to the page where it says, please select your investments. And I'm just seeing words like mid cap, small cap, large cap, Dodge and Cox. I'm like, I don't know what any of this means. And I just clicked out. And then I called my dad. I was like, please explain this to me. And I'm very lucky that I could phone a friend and call my dad. So many people can't. And that's where to come back to the target date fund that we've mentioned several times. If you're unfamiliar, a target date fund is basically a fund that is actively managed, which means a professional is going and picking the stocks and the portfolio, sometimes bonds, stocks, there might even be a little cash in there. But what it's going to be doing is the target date fund part, the target date part, is it is tied to the approximate year you'd retire. So let's say that you're listening to this and you think, I'll probably retire in like 2063. Usually they're in five-year increments. So your call, if you want to go 2060 or 2065, but you pick target date fund 2065. And then over the years, it goes from being more aggressive when you're younger to a bit more moderate as you're middle-aged and then a bit more conservative as we get towards retirement. The thing that's great about target date funds you're invested. And if you're just starting out and you don't know what to do, it's a really great way to just make sure that your money is invested. Downsides, it is an all-size-fits-all situation for something that really should be highly specified to you. Your investment portfolio should be all about you, your goals, your risk tolerance, aka how much risk you want to take, your time horizon, aka how much time until you need access to that money. And the target date fund also tends to come with a little bit more fees than if you do a build-your-own but it's not for life. You can pick it when you're young or you're just starting out. I shouldn't say young. If you're just starting out with investing and you don't know what else to do, just get started. And then you can always go in and reassess and do a different thing later. You're not locked in for life when you pick a target date fund. 
And just to dig into that a bit more, talk about what you mean when you're saying conservative versus aggressive. So conservative versus aggressive really just talks about stocks. So over the years, you don't want all of your money in the stock market. You're going to want some of it in slightly more conservative funds. So that could be the bond market. That could be moving money into cash. So as you get closer and closer to retirement, you don't want all of your money subject to the ups and downs of the stock market because the worst case for you would be if the stock market market started tank right as you needed to take money out. You don't want to take money out when the market's down. So that way you have some money that's in a bit more, we'll call stable investments like the bond funds, or it could also be that you've moved some into cash. You don't want to go all cash too early. You also don't want to go too conservative too early, which is another criticism a lot of people have of target date funds. Sometimes they get a little bit too conservative too early. And just to wrap that up, basically, like if you're investing and you're 40 years out from retirement into a target date fund, maybe their allocation is they put 90% into stocks and 10% into bonds. But as you get closer to retirement, they may change it to 60% stocks, 40% bonds. But you're not having to do anything actively to do that. That's the whole point of paying a slightly extra amount in fees for them to do that. You just set it and forget it. And that's the kind of the nice thing of these target date funds. Yeah, it is. And if you're not doing that, it's very easy to also put yourself in a position where you're never going in and rebalancing your portfolio. So for example, the 90-10 split that you're talking about when you're younger, let's say that you had 90-10 when you were 25 and now you're 35 and you've never gone back in and tinkered again, but maybe it would be a little bit better if it was more like... 2080 or even 7030, depending on when you want to retire. So, yeah, it's a great advantage that you don't have to think about it when it comes to a target date fund. Love that. <laughs> and if you are curious about these target date funds, we're not affiliated with any, of course, but you just search like Vanguard target date fund and enter the year that you think you're going to retire or Fidelity target date fund. I think there's just called the Freedom Fund. Is the only thing. I think their target date fund is referred to as a freedom fund. But again, if you get confused, it'll pop up. Call. I've tried. <laughs> yeah. And if you just Google the term, like like Vanguard and Fidelity are brokerages. So the brokerage you want to use plus target date fund, it's gonna yield the name of whatever special thing they might call it in-house if it's a slightly different name. So we've covered investing for retirement, kind of and the terminology that surrounds it. What else do you wish people knew about investing? A, you don't have to wait until you're debt-free. And B, you don't have to be wealthy to do it. Those, I think, are the two biggest fallacies surrounding investing for the average retail investor, which is just a jargony way to say, like, you and me who invest in the stock market. <laughs> and, okay, for instance, there are some people in the space who will say that you really shouldn't be investing even for retirement until you are debt-free. Often mortgages are a caveat in that, like you can still have a mortgage, but they still do mean student loans. And I do have a big issue with that because a lot of people are not going to be paying off their student loans until they're in their mid-30s, maybe their early 40s. So at that point, you have lost 10 to 15, maybe even more years of compound interest working for you, your money growing for you in the stock market which for some people that could be like a million dollar difference or at least hundreds of thousands of dollars of difference in the long run when we're looking at retirement at the end of the day. So what's important to me is the fact that we can balance in two things. You can be paying off debt and contributing to your retirement plan at the same time. So it gets a little bit more gray area nuanced if you're like 
you know, tens of thousands of dollars deep in credit card debt just because those interest rates are often so high. So if we're looking at interest rates north of 20%, then you're right. The market's not outperforming that. You should aggressively be paying off that debt. But if we're looking at an auto loan or a student loan or something that might be carrying an interest rate that's definitely under 7%, you should definitely be investing at the same time. Bare minimum get your company match if your company offers one. And if they don't, you should still be, I'm going to say, 2 to 3% at least that you're putting into your 401k. But if your company offers, let's say, a 2 or 3%, 4%, 5% match, whatever it is, try to put in enough to get the match. And maybe right now you're like, oh my God, nope, can't do all of those things. That is just too much to balance. Don't go all the way to the match then. Let's start with 1%. Oftentimes, we don't even feel that in a paycheck if you're contributing 1%. And then in six months, try to push it up by another half a percent or a full percent if you can. So then you get to two. And then in another three to six months, we're going to go for another one. You get to three. Set an alert on your phone, have a reminder in your calendar, whatever you need to do to remind yourself to do it. But those very slow incremental progressions towards getting to the amount that you want to put away, that can make a big difference. Because the other thing that I hear oh, I'll just wait till all my debt is paid off or I'll I'll just wait till I'm making X amount of money. Let me just also be the truth teller on the other side of life, which is it tends to get more complicated, not less. So maybe you decide in the time between that 10, 15 year span to get married, to buy a home, to have a kid. Maybe none of that is true, but you end up having some sort of chronic health issue. Maybe a family member ends up ill and you have to be a caregiver for them. Things are just going to happen. And some of those things in life will be good and some of those things in life will be trying. And so if you keep trying to put off achieving a financial goal until things are perfect, I'm telling you, it's not going to happen. So we have to take those slow incremental steps towards the goal we want to take. And the last preaching thing I'm going to say on this topic is that Again, so often we get really fixated on, well, people say you need to put 10 or 20% aside for retirement, and I can't do that right now, so I'm just not going to do it. The small amounts still add up. They still make a big difference. So focusing on that 2%, then 3%, then 4%. Because also trying to go from zero to, okay, now I feel good, I can just put 10% away, that you're going to feel in your paycheck. Mm -hmm. That is going to have a big difference on your month-to-month budget. So these slow incremental paces towards it makes it a lot easier for you to kind of keep adjusting and making that a reality for yourself compared to overnight you think you're just going to go from zero to 10 or 20. One exercise that I've done with my followers is I've just said, I'm going to show you how you can invest $10. Because the hardest thing is not the amount that you're investing the very first time. It's the actual act of doing it. And being able to, one, invest, and also, two, do it with $10 just shows you that all of those myths that you have, those misconceptions around investing are wrong. So it is the most cool thing. And I wish someone would have done that for me when I was 20 years old and had all these thoughts in my mind of, oh, I'm not investing is for the rich people. I don't have enough money to do it. All these things. I wish someone would have just sat me down and said, take $10. Here is how you're going to invest $10. Because then once you do it, like once you get your foot in the door for investing, it's suddenly you realize it's less scary than you thought it was. And also, it is okay if you come up against words that you're like, what does that mean? I don't understand this. Am I doing this right? Just press pause and go look it up. No one expects you to speak the language of investing the very first time you try to start investing. So if you get into an app or a portal or you're on a brokerage website and you start seeing terms like margin and stop loss and limit, and you're like, I don't know what any of that means. 
that's okay. You have never been taught this language. I think back to algebra two class. I don't know why that's always the one that sits in my head. I'm like, if you don't know what a variable is, you don't know what a variable is. You have to get taught what that means. And it's the same with investing. It is okay that you're first getting into these things and you have no idea about the language. Don't allow that to tell you that you can't do it. It just Mm -hmm. means that it's something you have to take a little bit of extra time to learn. And that's fine. Yeah. And also don't think that you have to be a 100% expert. There are investment professionals who spend 12 hours a day investing, yet they do not know everything there is to know. And I think if you are anything like me, I'm very analytical. I want to feel like I have a great grasp on something before I jump into it. That's actually not the best thing. You don't have to know every single definition to get started with investing. Know the basics, stuff that we've talked about. You know, know these and then just start. You don't have to know everything. And just starting. Like, it is true that just getting past that first $10 or opening up that 401k at work, like, just do it. And that's going to make the difference. Continuing to think about it and learn about it doesn't make the difference. The (laughs) difference is actually taking the action and doing the thing. If you had to summarize three biggest money mistakes people are making, what are they? One is not investing at all. That, I think, is the biggest mistake. And I also just want to say, with full acknowledgement of understanding that it feels like the world is burning a lot, because I was hearing this before a pandemic, like before all of that, there were a lot of folks who felt like, what is the point for saving for a future that feels like it's not going to come? And I do want to point out, previous generations have gone through massive, massive upheaval, and it felt like the world was ending then, and it didn't. So don't guarantee yourself an apocalypse, a personal financial apocalypse, by not preparing for the future. Instead, let's prepare as if everything is going to turn out okay. And if it ends up that we all need medicine and gold bars, then you know we'll have bigger things to worry about at that point. But if it doesn't, you want to make sure that you have fully funded a retirement account. That would be one. Another big one is just the feeling of paralysis. And some of it's analysis paralysis. Like I have to learn all the things before I can figure out a debt payoff plan, before I can figure out how to invest, before I can figure out X, Y, Z about my financial life. Just pick one thing to start with. And honestly, just make it like a small win. What is a small way by the end of this week that you can have a win for yourself? One example, have a hard money conversation with somebody. Like set a boundary with somebody about your financial life or ask somebody a question that you've always been wondering. If you have a friend that's constantly showboating on Instagram about how they're able to take all of these awesome trips, ask them financially how they can afford it. I think that's a perfectly fair and reasonable question to ask. And then they might introduce you to travel hacking. I don't know. I'm just saying, ask the hard question. Don't allow this Money doesn't have to be scary. And I think we give it so much power over us because we are afraid to feel vulnerable and we're afraid of moments where we're going to feel, I don't like saying dumb, but that is, I think, sometimes how we feel. And I mean, there's moments, especially with investing, like there's times where I'm like, how do I not know this? Or how did I not do that? This is literally my profession. How am I making this kind of mistake? People who are experts in this still make mistakes. So if you're not an expert in this, let that be a comfort as well. And then a third thing, I'm going to come back to facing your numbers. Like just the number of people who allow money to have this control over their life because they're too afraid to just assess the full situation. It's really important 
that you pull up all the debt, pull up the bank statements, see how you're spending your money, see how much money is coming in and create the full picture for yourself. Because without that information, you can't make any decisions. You can't create that debt payoff plan. You can't figure out how to be investing. You can't even set goals for your financial life until you know all of the information. And that's really where I want you to start. And if you're scared to do it, just do little pieces at a time. Maybe have an accountability buddy to do it with you if that makes you feel good, if you're willing to be that level of vulnerable. And please forgive yourself for any past mistakes that you made. You know, if you of five years ago, 10 years ago, even two months ago, didn't know how to properly use a credit card and screwed up and ended up in some credit card debt, or maybe you did know how to use a credit card, but life kind of came at you fast and you had to unfortunately use that as your emergency savings fund. Things happen. Acknowledge that it happened, assess why, so you have the information for next time, but let's just release it and move on. I do not think it's at all helpful to grovel in shame and feel like a failure around something. You absolutely 100% can be in control of your money and your financial life. Mm, So good. And I think that people overlook how intertwined money and psychology is. It really matters the way that you talk to yourself about money and the way that you treat yourself when it comes to money. If you're telling yourself, I can't do it, or I've made these mistakes, I will continue to make these mistakes, that will impact you financially if you really believe that because that's that's how you're going to behave around that narrative that you've created. And I will also say to anyone who has children in their life, and it might not be your children, it could be nieces or nephews or friends, kids that you see a lot, Kids are picking up messages all the time around this. You learned money from whoever raised you and you can end a cycle that might have been happening in your family potentially for generations around money. So just think really critically too about, I think one of the best financial gifts we can give anyone isn't necessarily an inheritance. I think it is a competent and confidence feeling when it comes to how to handle your money. And you don't have to be a wealthy person to do that and to feel that. A hundred percent. And I also think that I can speak for myself growing up. My parents were really good at teaching me about the saving side of the equation, how to be more frugal, how to turn off the lights to save money on electricity, everything related to how to save more money, but never about how to make more money, how to invest and how to, you know, invest for retirement and how to negotiate for a raise and all these conversations about the other side of the equation, which is just as important, if not more important. So I'm very grateful to them for teaching me about saving, but I think when I have kids, the greatest thing I I can tell them is the other side of the equation. But if you're listening and you have kids, like the way for you to teach your kids about investing is for you to first learn about it yourself, right? And so many of us growing up in these middle-class, lower-middle-class families just did not know that other side of the equation. Whereas when I see my friends who have parents who were millionaires, they know about investing. They know about how to create tax efficiencies around your life, right? Yeah, and I think that when we talk about generational wealth, so much of it is knowledge and access. And that is one thing that we can also pass on if we educate ourselves as we can pass on financial knowledge. And again, like it doesn't have to be massive amounts of money that you're passing on. Great and helpful for your children, maybe if it is, but just to put them on a playing field where they understand more than just frugality, which sometimes breeds scarcity mindset. And that can be a whole different conversation for another day, but it is just very important that you are also open and honest and have age-appropriate 
but important conversations about money with children, either your own or others in your life that might be very close to you as well. I love this. We're so on the same page. So we have a little closing tradition. The podcast is called Erica Taught Me, but really today is all about Aaron Taught Me. So what do you want people to walk away being able to say, Aaron taught me this? I would say I want you to think, Aaron taught me how to think critically about what I value and to make sure that I am spending money in alignment with what I want and what I value and learning how to communicate that to the important people in my life so that I am not always allowing other people and societal expectations to spend my money. Yay! I love that. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Erin has a brand new workbook titled The Broke Millennial Workbook that helps you take control and get your financial life together. I'll leave the link to it in the show notes. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please take a moment to leave a review. It really helps support the work that we're doing. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next Tuesday on a brand new episode of Erica Taught Me.